0: Whether you're listening from somewhere in this world or the next, this planet or another, we're glad you're here to join us as we explore unexplainable truths. I'm your host, Wendy Jaglarski. So I'm honored to have Brian Forrester on with us today. He's a top researcher in lost ancient civilizations, megalithic structures, and the mysterious Paracas elongated skulls. He's explored over 100 countries, published over 35 books, and has appeared on numerous TV shows such as Ancient Aliens over 20 times. So let's get to it. And I'd like to introduce Brian Forster to the show. Hey, Brian, how are you?
1: Good, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I can't wait to get going here so the listeners can hear all these fascinating things that you have to share about your research and experiences. Um, let's start with you telling a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field.
1: Well, I was born in the U.S., uh, grew up in Canada. Um, as you said, I've traveled to about 100 countries and had a very early fascination for ancient enigmas when I was a child. The first probably was just the Sphinx in Egypt. And so um, for the past 15 years or so, I've been able to make this my full-time obsession and profession to travel to uh, ancient sites in different parts of the world and study enigmatic places that standard academics um, don't understand.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, For some of our listeners who aren't super familiar with the topic, would you be able to describe what some of these uh, ancient megalithic structures are and What makes them so special and unique compared to other ancient structures?
1: Okay, well, I guess the two most popular locations would be Egypt and Peru. And in Egypt, the academics insist that the dynastic Egyptians built everything that is in Egypt at that time, starting about 5,000 years ago. Um, And then in Peru, of course, you have the famous Inca culture in the highlands of Peru, and academics believe that the Inca built everything um, of an ancient nature there. But it doesn't take much uh, imagination or logic to figure out that some of the structures that we find in those countries and in others could not technically have been done by the cultures ascribed to their construction because they didn't have a high enough level of technology to pursue such things.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are um, some of the details about the sizes and what type of advanced technologies might have been needed to accomplish these feats that make it so out of the realm for, you know, our ancient people to have done this, um, you know, 5,000 years ago?
1: Well, the obvious example would be the Great Pyramid, consisting of between 2.3 and 2.5 multi-ton blocks of limestone. And according to the standard story, the Great Pyramid was built uh, in 20 to 25 years. And if that's the case, that means that um, it would uh, mean that these ancient people would have to have cut, transported, and set into place one of these multi-ton blocks every two minutes on a based on a twenty-four hour a day schedule. That's clearly not possible.
0: Right, right, right. And the the I've heard that the way that the pyramid has settled, it's like less than a couple inches in these thousands of years, which isn't typical in our building of today. Um, and also some of the dimensions of it when you added up is the speed of light, is that true?
1: Well, the speed of light, also the um, relationship to the circumference of the earth. Uh, The Great Pyramid is located in the geographic center of the planet, which is probably not a coincidence. So there are all these uh, amazing uh, mathematical formulas uh, that uh, involve the dimensions and proportions of the great pyramid as well its 13 acre footprint is something like perfectly fat, flat within less than half an inch and that's over 13 acres and that that kind of tolerance is not something that even modern buildings require
0: right yeah it's it's incredible um even some of our our cranes and things today couldn't cut or transport some of the sizes of these blocks today, so it's strange how you know scientists think that it was just easily achieved by you know our ancient people. It doesn't make any sense. Um, can you talk about some of the megalithic structures in Peru, such as um the H blocks that appear to have laser laser cuts and some of the stone walls that appear to be melted together?
1: Sure. Well, actually the H blocks are located in Bolivia, which is very close by at a site called Pumapunku. And they are technically almost perfectly flat um, with complex angles. And uh, again, the standard academic story is that the Bronze Age culture called the Tiwanaku people were responsible for its construction between 2,000 and 1,000 years ago. Um, You would have to have very advanced technology to be able to shape those blocks. Also, the quarry from which the blocks come from is 55 miles to the northeast. So then you have a problem of the transportation of them, um, as well as, of course, the cutting of them uh, as well. So again, that's a a paradigm that simply doesn't make sense whatsoever.
0: It doesn't. It's... It's mind-blowing. Um, some of these things even show incredibly small holes, right? Uh, small holes drilled in almost or uh, saw marks. Um, how would that how do they think that would have been accomplished with primitive tools? Um, what is What is their response to that?
1: do, well, or do they, they even did, have actually, one? in Egypt well, in Egypt they did try experiments with bronze saws. Um, and then sprinkling um, ground-up quartz um, sand and then pouring water on it and uh, drawing the the saw back and forth. Um, The experiments that they tried were very, very inefficient. They were barely able to make much of a a scratch mark or, or very little cutting into the stone over the course of many hours in one day. So that, that kind of experiment clearly failed. Also, there are lots of drill holes of different sizes um, all over ancient Egypt, which um, supposedly were done by a tool 300 times more efficient than what we have today, which is a diamond uh, encrusted drill bit.
0: Wow. What do you think happened that, that there's such a gap in our knowledge from back then compared to now?
1: Well, again, it's it's our understanding of uh, the age of civilizations. And uh, most academics believe that civilization goes back perhaps 5,500 years to places like Egypt and China and the Indus Valley. That's when the first uh, supposed cultures developed. Um, but we're of the, of the opinion, and this is based on scientific data, that there was a series of cataclysms that uh, hit the planet between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago, causing the destruction of very advanced civilizations who were responsible for these enormous constructions. And these um, civilizations were wiped off the map, so there, there would be no physical trace of their existence anymore. And then the civilizations we know of uh, were a renaissance of, uh, of culture about 5,500 years ago. So that would indicate that the dynastic people moved into Egypt about 5,500 to 3,000 or 5,500 to 6,000 years ago and found some of these structures in place and simply adopted them. And in the case of the Inca, the Inca arrived in their capital city of Cusco a thousand years ago, and they would have discovered the remnants of a megalithic uh, city complex that had been destroyed by, uh, again, a series of cataclysms. They simply adopted them and built on top and around what they found.
0: Right. Right. I think that's key is for people to understand that, you know, our, you know, more modern yet ancient civilizations adopted these older, ancient sites. And they even themselves say that they didn't build this. This was there when they, when they got there. So it just always boggles my mind on why science in general is so, you know, so opposed to that. Um, it's like they don't want to believe that we could have been more advanced at some time, 10, 12,000, you know, who knows even longer ago. Um, I'd love it if you could tell me some of your favorite megalithic structures since you have, you know, been all over the world and seen things that most people never get the chance. Um can you tell us what some of those are and then maybe paint a mental picture for the listeners so they can understand why they're so important and intriguing to you.
1: Okay, sure. There are so many of them, but um in Egypt you have A lot of, there's a a site called the Serapium at Saqqara, which is a a tunnel system that has 25 stone boxes. Some of the boxes weigh as much as 100 tons. Uh, Each stone box was carved, the box and the lid were carved out of one giant block of stone and somehow transported within the, the tunnel without any use of, uh, of light that the dynastic Egyptians would have had, such as torches. Uh, there's also the Osiris shaft located on the Giza Plateau, and it's a, a shaft that was cut into the bedrock um, going down about 200 feet. Um, it's in three layers. And again, it's not something that the dynastic people could have achieved. Uh, there are large stone boxes uh, located in that as well. Then you have Baalbek in Lebanon, where there is um, a 1,200-ton block, which is still attached to the bedrock uh, that most academics say the Romans were responsible for. Right next to what they've just uncovered another block, which is 1,600 tons. And then the nearby site of Baalbek itself, um, you can see three distinct building uh, patterns, the lower section is megalithic with blocks up to a 1,000 tons. Then the next level is Roman. And then the next level is from the Middle Ages. And the finest work is at the bottom, and the less fine work is at the top. And that's what we see in many different ancient countries, where the, the work of, of the, um, the cultures we know of is inferior to the work of the, um, of the older culture uh, whom, whom they discovered
0: hmm. And, yeah, some of those some of those blocks, uh, stone blocks that appear to be melted together, there's no mortar. You couldn't fit even a piece of paper between them. Um, and it yet stays pristine and perfect over millennia. It's it's amazing. Um what do you think the the Great Pyramid was used for? I know so many academics um, kind of differ on this. So, you know, the general consensus is that it was a tomb. What do you think it was built for?
1: I think it was a giant energetic device of some kind. Um, there are no hieroglyphics inside the Great Pyramid or the other um, ancient pyramids uh, in Egypt, such as that. Um, at, well, at Saqqara, there's the step pyramid, which the dynastic people built, but there are about eight um, super ancient pyramids that have no hieroglyphics whatsoever inside or, um, or on their surface. And that's uh, uh, diametrically opposed to anything we see in dynastic Egypt, because the dynastic people inscribed or, or cut hieroglyphics into almost every square inch of surface of any temple or building that they constructed. So that's a, that's a major difference right there.
0: How old do you think that the great pyramid is?
1: I think it's about 12,000 years old.
0: Okay. And, and is it true about 12,000 years ago is when everything lined up to where it looks like the, the uh, Orion's belt?
1: Well, that is one theory. I'm I'm not sure if it's actually correct. And that was a, something that Robert Boval, who's a good friend of mine, came up with, that uh, the three great pyramids um, align with the, the belt of Orion. So that could be. But um, there, the interesting thing is that the great pyramid is almost perfectly aligned north, south, east, and west. But it's off by something like six degrees of um, or minutes of arc. And yet there are other structures that we find in Egypt that are 23 but 23 degrees off. So they appear to have been constructed when the earth's axis was different. So I would call those mm-hmm. pre-cataclysmic structures.
0: Got it. Got it. And, you know, when you think I, mean, earlier you had mentioned how the great pyramid is in the center of all earth's mass, correct? Did I get that yeah. right? So even if you think, you know, that that's that's a impossible feat uh, for for really you know it's very difficult if you didn't have satellites or some type of extremely high technology I mean just think if you were to try to find the exact center of your town that you live in you know just yourself or you know how do you measure that it's just it doesn't make sense you know put it on a smaller scale can you find the exact center of of your city can you find the exact center of your country let alone of the whole world and say that it just was you know just these primitive people with rudimentary tools
1: well um, it's uh it would be an amazing coincidence if if it was a coincidence that it happened to be in the geographic center of the land masses of of the planet so i think it was uh That that location, I believe, was chosen on on purpose.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, So I'd like to switch over for a bit to these enigmatic elongated skulls found in Paracas, Peru, that I've seen you talk a lot about. Um, Can you explain what these Mm -hmm. are and what makes them so incredibly unique?
1: Sure. Well, um, this culture called what we call the Paracas existed supposedly from about seven eight seven hundred to eight hundred BC up until one hundred AD. And their their main feature that sets them apart from any other culture in the area is that they had in quite enormous elongated skulls. The volume of the skulls of the oldest one are 25 to 30% larger than a normal human being. And again, academics attribute all of them to cranial deformation or head binding of of babies. But uh, the problem with that theory is that you could change the shape of a skull, but you can't change the volume. So that by itself makes their theory uh, collapse. The other location where we find elongated skulls of the same size are around the Black Sea and uh, Caspian Sea in Eurasia they're almost exactly if not exactly the same looking
0: right and I saw you discuss um, because there's several people in my life as well that you know discount this as being traditional head binding Um, but I saw you discussed in one of your documentaries about a seven month old fetus was found with this elongated skull And the skull was the same, you know, pretty much the same size in relation to the rest of its body. So you wouldn't be able to elongate a skull by binding in utero. How was that? How was that found? And can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. That was a great discovery. And I happened to be um, accompanied by an American radiologist at the time, Ken. Uh, we had explored Pumapunku and Tiwanaku the day before and so I asked him that evening if he'd like to see if we can find this obscure little museum that supposedly has um, a full skeleton with an elongated skull. He said sure and so I uh, depended upon his expertise as a master of uh, analysis of, of human anatomy of what he was looking at and uh, just he, he looked at at the um the skeleton and he said that's not a human being and then right after that we saw in a case right next to it that there was a a baby skeleton and uh, he looked at that and he said this would be an unborn child probably uh, seven to nine months old and the head was the size of the torso so in in relation um to the body that skull was absolutely enormous. Then he also believed that the the adult skeleton and the baby skeleton were probably mother and daughter or mother and baby and that they both died during childbirth. So those were his, um, the results mm-hmm. of his study of that.
0: Wow. And their their eye sockets are also quite quite larger than a typical human being, correct?
1: Oh, definitely. Sometimes up to about 50% larger than a normal human being. So that, again, is not something that is the result of head binding or cranial deformation. Also what's called the foramen magnum, which is at the bottom of the skull, that's where your spinal cord enters. Um, the foramen magnum is a full inch Farther back than where it should be in a normal human being. That also is not something that you can achieve with head binding. So those are, you know, those are factors that indicate that we're not looking at Homo sapiens sapiens with the original uh, Paracas and other elongated skulls that we've been studying.
0: Right. And didn't you do some DNA testing? Can you share with the listeners um, a little bit about that? That was pretty compelling.
1: Sure. Yeah, it was. We did uh, a DNA testing of 20 skulls uh, from the Paracas culture, and then also one from a small museum in the highlands of Peru. And of the 20, uh, only two showed the maternal haplogroup or ethnicity to be Native American, because the, the um, People of Native American ancestry that live in this area in Peru and also their ancestors are uh, predominantly haplogroup B. So we had two that were haplogroup B, then three that the the program of the computer said unknown. The program couldn't figure out what the ethnicity or haplogroups were. And then the others were... um, more related to the elongated skulls that we find around the Black Sea area. Wow.
0: And aside from their elongated skulls, did their physical stature differ from, from ours in any way? And if so, how?
1: Uh, not, not in any strange way. Some people would say, well, did they have six fingers and six toes? And that's not the case, because people are trying to relate these to being the Nephilim or the Anunnaki or something. Uh, mm-hmm. the hips are the hips of the females are larger than normal in order to accommodate the elongated head um, and they were actually relatively quite a bit taller than indigenous people of Peru. They seem to average between five foot ten and six foot two whereas the average modern day uh, pure blooded native Peruvian is about five foot four or five foot five so they would appear relatively as giants compared to the, the normal indigenous population.
0: Hmm. And so these, these people are, they lived amongst the natives. Was there any, any evidence found in, in burials or any culture uh, stories that, that talk about who these people were or them being different? Um, Was there anything talked about that aside from simply finding their skeletons and skulls?
1: Well, they were the nobility of of the people. Uh, They were the priests and they were the the chief, uh, chief culture. Um, And, you know, they were a relatively small number of people uh, but they, um, you know, they they seem to have, uh, as I said, appeared in the area about 800 BC. But that's not really based on any carbon-14 testing uh, that that has been conducted. But they they appear to have been in ch- in charge of the the local indigenous population of this area.
0: Wow. Um, do you have a theory as to whether this was simply a genetic mutation amongst a group of early humans or Is there any evidence suggesting this might be, you know, there might be some extraterrestrial influence or interbreeding, anything like that? I know that's a little out there, but what do you think?
1: No, I I honestly do entertain the the possibility that they were originally not from this planet. Um, For them to be genetically so different can't take place um, over the course of a few thousand years, you know, That takes a long, long time for a subspecies to develop out of uh, or a species to develop out of another species or even subspecies. So that's what makes them so enigmatic in that they suddenly appear and then they last maybe less than a thousand years and then they disappear. Uh, Mm -hmm. So It's quite strange. We do know that they they were taken over by what is called the more famous Nazca culture of the area. And it appears that the Nazca, Nazca people uh, caused genocide of these ancient Paracas uh, no, noble class.
0: Wow. Do you think, so I just I just thought of this, with the Nazca lines, um, are they tied together in any way to to these elongated skull beings? What was the, yeah, definitely. You know, what the time we, difference we so. was? Like, Could they have been possibly trying to call them back?
1: Um, well, that's yeah. That's one of the interesting things about them is that we do know the time frame. The, the Nazca system of lines and geoglyphs were created between 500 BC and 500 AD. Now, the Nazca themselves show up about 100 AD, so somebody had to be responsible <clears throat> before that time. And even academics state that the Paracas were the ones who initiated the whole concept of the lines and geoglyphs. So. Uh, That system is very, it's much bigger than what most people realize. It extends for more than a hundred miles from Paracas, which is where I'm located down to Nazca. And there's a location uh, in between here and Nazca called Palpa. And that's where you find about 1,600 geoglyphs uh, made on the tops of mesas. Uh, So what, appears to have happened is that the majority of these were made by the Paracas people and then adopted by the Nazca, and then the Nazca continued making them farther south in the actual Nazca area.
0: Mm. Is there any data suggesting what percentage of the population accounted for these elongated skulls? you know did they was it less than one percent of the population had this or is are there any estimates on that
1: yeah it's probably one percent or less because the elongated skull people were buried in four different uh royal cemeteries whereas the 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 common people were buried where they lived so if they were farmers they would be buried um In the area of the farmland, if they were fishermen, they were buried at the coast. So there are four four very distinct uh, ancient cemeteries where you only find these elongated skulls.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's intriguing within itself. Um, Out of these elongated skulls that are confirmed to not be the result of you know, the traditional head binding. Why do some of them have the typical sagittal suture, yet others do not? Can you explain to the listeners what the sagittal suture is and why some of them have it and some of them don't?
1: Okay, well, we have uh, two major sutures um, on our skulls. One goes right across your forehead, and then another one connects to that and goes backwards. And connects up to the occipital um, area of the of the brain, which is in the back part. So that that's what a normal human being looks like. But in the oldest of the Paracas skulls, the sagittal suture simply doesn't exist. So that's another genetic anomaly that uh, academics don't even basically address. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that where uh, a baby would have a soft spot? Is that what that what would eventually fuse as the sagittal suture?
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, okay. it's, the, it's the connecting area between the two sutures, which is where the soft spot is on the top part of your forehead. So after about two years, uh, that closes up. Um, but the 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 fact that there is no sagittal suture whatsoever, and I've had, At least 30 foreign medical professionals um, come and see this in person, and they they simply can't explain what it is that they're looking at. There's no uh, genetic anomaly or medical condition that they can think of that could be responsible for this.
0: This is um, specific to the elongated skulls. We don't find this uh, missing sagittal suture in any other skulls anywhere else. Is that correct?
1: Uh, well, the same is the case in the skulls that are found around the Black Sea. Um, also, I think two thousand skulls have been found on the island of Malta that also don't have the sagittal suture, but they're and they're elongated, but they're more horizontally elongated than vertically.
0: Mm. Okay. So, why do you think that scientists are so opposed to embracing? This type of evidence. Um, it seems that they push a lot of this unexplainable stuff just off to the side and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, whereas in any other aspect of science, it seems that they would be flocking to this stuff and trying to find out, you know, what's going on here. But when it comes to ancient stuff, it seems there's sort of a stigma in. I don't know, embracing anything that's, that goes against the grain. Why, why do you think that is?
1: Well, that's the real curiosity. And to be honest with you, um, that's more or less the domain of um, archaeologists and anthropologists and anthropology and archaeology are not hard sciences as compared to physics or chemistry. So that's why I've had, um, physicists and engineers and architects and stonemasons come with me to look at the megalithic structures. And they they can't explain how a people like the dynastic Egyptians could have done the work or the Inca. And in the case of the elongated skulls, again, I've had numerous medical professionals from different foreign countries come and look at them. And they they are all awestruck and they, they can't figure out um, what it is that they're actually looking at. The most insightful was Dr. Ken, who came with me to that little museum in Bolivia to see the, the, the mother and baby skeleton. And um, he and uh, another doctor called Dr. Weischer, um, I took in person to see them, and neither of them could explain why the skull of the baby could be that big. And the the mother's skull was, I would estimate, 50% larger than a normal human skull. And again, you can't explain that away by head binding. So that's why there's such amazing anomalies. Mm
0: -hmm. And with head binding, you can kind of see ridges, right? Or where the binding was uh, versus the elongated skulls, you don't see any of that evidence, correct? It's more evident when someone is doing the head binding?
1: Well, definitely, because basically what head binding does is you have something relatively rigid placed on the forehead and something relatively rigid placed on the back of the skull, and then you have a rope or string or a fiber of some kind to do the binding. It takes between two and three years from a newborn to a two- or three-year-old to complete the process, but what you're left with are simply flat depressions on the forehead and the back of the head. But that doesn't explain the what I call the naturally elongated skulls, which are vertically quite elongated and are very complex in terms of their curvature. There's no simple flat um, flat area on the front of the back. You have all sorts of compound curvature
0: mhm um, yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Um, do you think that? You know, human society, you see, um, you see it in Africa, you see it in South America, different places around the world where people do this head binding. Do you think that they're doing that in an attempt to emulate a older society, something they saw?
1: Yeah, I think so, because it has to be based on, on something. No one would simply in, invent a process like that. Uh, so... That's, that's my belief. Um, you know, the great thing is, is that here in Peru, um, I can physically examine the skulls. Um, there are stories that, uh, of course, that, uh, elongated skulls existed in ancient Egypt, in, uh, Eastern Europe, um, uh, Melanesia, uh, Western Africa, and other locations. But, um, the finest examples are located here in Peru.
0: Got it. Um, so the clock is ticking and, you know, we're just about done here. Um, I wanted to say though, you know, you're a wealth of knowledge when it comes to these megalithic structures and elongated skulls and you're a world traveler. Um, you've dedicated a large portion of your life to in-person hands-on research more than others would ever get the chance to. Um, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think is important for listeners to know about uh, these, these things and is there anything new on the horizon that people should keep an eye out for um, with, with your work or maybe any testing that's going to be done?
1: Um, Okay. Well, I think the important thing is that um, the, you know, the megalithic sites are not necessarily found all over the world, but they are found in very, specific locations such as uh, Peru and Bolivia, Egypt, uh, Jordan, um, where else, Lebanon. Uh, There's a lot in Turkey, and there's some in Saudi Arabia that have only recently been examined, and then Easter Island, of course. So I think the, the basic concept is that the cultures that we um, are taught were the creators of these works, were actually the inheritors of the works. Uh, That's why on Easter Island, for example, you find 950 of the so-called moai, which are the large stone heads, which in fact are full, full bodies once you do the excavation. And you see two different styles. You see probably the work of the Polynesians, which are between six and eight feet tall that have flattened noses and then the larger and probably older ones, which are up to about 30 feet tall. So it's, you know, it's basically that's the same pattern you see everywhere is that a culture moves in, finds ancient structures and then adapt them to their own cultural uh, needs and desires.
0: Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Easter Island is fascinating, isn't it? One of the remotest places on Earth, uh, the island, and how they got there and transported this, it's its a mystery.
1: Um, yeah, well, it's located about 2,200 miles off the coast of uh, Chile, and I've been there three times, and I've had the great opportunity to meet with elders who live there who still remember the history, and they say that... Uh, the history of Easter Island is far more complicated than what most academics have written down because academics don't have a tendency of consulting with indigenous people about their own culture and history. So that's why going to these locations and meeting with the, those that still carry the knowledge is uh, profoundly rewarding.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd love it if you could share, um, your websites and such with listeners. So people who are interested in learning more about your work uh, can possibly go on or or go on one of these, you know, amazing guided tours that you do um, every year. I think they're actually a couple times a year you go on these tours. Um, So if you can give out maybe some of your information so that people could follow up with with your work if they wanted to.
1: Sure. My website is www.hiddenincatours.com. And there, about 95% of the information, you have videos, you have books, you have um, articles, photographs, uh, et cetera. About 95 or more percent of that is simply free uh, for the public. But it also contains links to tours that we do. So for this year, we have a tour of Peru and Bolivia in June and then another one in August and another one in November. And as well, I'll be going to Malta for the first time in September, and then Egypt in October, from October 1st to 14th. So those are ways that people can actually fiscally fiscally come and uh, have literal hands-on experiences with the ancient structures that we study.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. You have a very exciting life, Brian. Um, It's been a pleasure speaking with you today um, and having the chance, you know, for you to share with us all of this knowledge. Um, Thank you so much. And I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Be sure to like and follow, subscribe on any of your favorite podcast apps. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, take care.